This evening we are recording a study in the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 19, to chapter 2, verse 7. And this section we are calling the throne room because it deals with the position of our Saviour far above all. It is our custom in these meetings, as most of you know, to read a portion of Scripture beforehand. And those who are listening to this recording, if they care to join us, may like to know that we are reading together Isaiah 52 and 53. So if they care to switch off while we read together, then we can all go on together with our study in Ephesians. The special point for us this evening in this reading in Isaiah 52 and 53 is found in verses 14 and 15 of 52. You notice that it says, As many were astonished at thee, and then stops. Because strictly speaking, it should say, should say, As many did this, so some did that. But you put a bracket round the next bit, and then you read verses 14 and 15 like this. As many were astonished at thee, so shall he sprinkle many nations. He says, sprinkle. Now, what they want to do with being astonished? And then you remember the revised version puts in the margin, startle. Because the word sprinkle can be used of sprinkling something, but you can't sprinkle a nation on something else. It's the spurt out and startle when it's dealing with the people. So now we've got the point. Just as surely, as they were astonished when they saw his humiliation, his visage more mild than that of any man. So shall they be startled when they perceive his glory. And then he begins to develop it in Isaiah 53. And verse 13 precedes this astonishment by saying, He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And either of those words is enough but not enough for God when he's speaking about his beloved. He says not only is he exalted, but he's extolled and he's very high. And we're going to see something about that being exalted and extolled and very high in the section before us in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. Shall we now turn then to Ephesians chapter 1 and halfway through verse 19 we pick up the record. In the earlier section of this chapter, we have had the marvellous revelation that the Father chose this company of people in Christ before the overthrow or foundation of the world. And then in fullness of time, this chosen company were found to be in bondage, and by redemption they were delivered, set free and forgiven, and an inheritance was given them. And then during this present waiting period, they have the seal and the earnest until the redemption of the purchased possession. He then stops and says that original preparation is yours by the mercy of God. But it doesn't follow because it's yours. You're going to experimentally enjoy it. So now I pray for you that you may know what is the riches of the glory and the hope and so on. And he ends up with that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us all to believe. And that's where we finished last time. This believing of ours may be a simple thing in itself, 
but it is attached to the mightiest power that the scripture knows. And that's where we're beginning. We have this evening before us a section which starts with the words, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ. It then goes on to speak of him, and you will notice in the little analysis before you, we've got into another part of this building, which is the figure we are using, we call this the throne room. When you go into Windsor Castle or Hampton Court, there's the throne room. But here's a throne room which is rather different because there's accommodation beside of this throne for poor outcast Gentiles to be seated ultimately where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Now this is going to take your breath away, doesn't it? But you see, we're out in an ocean now, friends. We've already had such riches of grace and marvels of mercy that we're almost ready for anything so long as God says it. Well, he's saying. And the first thing we notice is we have this power emphasized and then a threefold statement concerning Christ. This power is first of all focused upon him. It raised him. It seated him. And it gave him to be the head. And then afterwards we have another reference to a mighty power and then it quickened us and raised us and seated us. And that's the right order. Him first, us second. There's no other order. Because if Christ be not raised from the dead, it's morally certain we shall never be. If he is not seated at the right hand of the Father, well, it's hopeless for us to think of getting anywhere, let alone there. So here's the right order. Well, now this evening, there's every possibility we should only get halfway through this wonderful story. I want to approach it under three headings. The power, for that is stressed. The preeminent position, for that is stressed. And the pre-Roma, for that is the title of the church when we get to the end of verse 23. So they all commence with the same letter to fix it in our memory. The power, the preeminent position, and the pre-Roma. Now the scripture seems to go out of its way to stress this question of power. Because you notice that we have in these verses, verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power? That's one word. According to the working, that's another word, of his mighty, that's another word, of his power, that's yet another word. There are four different words used in this verse so that we shall get some idea of this mighty power. Now I think it's worth a moment to consider them, don't you? especially as it's directed to us. The first word, in verse 19, is the word dunamis. And the letter U generally becomes a letter Y when it's taken out of the Greek and put into English. So this is dynamis, or dynamo, or dynamite, or dynamic. This is the great dynamic of God. This is the all-covering power that's behind everything, the, the dynamic. This is the word that is translated miracle in the Gospel according to Matthew, over and over again. So here we have a miraculous dynamic associated with that, with our faith. Our little puny faith. Our tiny little hand stretched out to God. is stretching out to come into contact with dynamite. 
with a miraculous power, not to destroy, but to hold, to lead, to bless, to keep, and to present ultimately in glory. The next word is the word that gives us our English word energy. En means in, and ergio is to work, or ergos is a work, so energy is to in work. Now I think we must stop here. The first word power is the power that's at our disposal. The second word is the power that's being used. Now if I were, I won't do it, but if I were to turn just for a moment and switch off a little switch the side of this pulpit, the recording would stop. But I should go on, but there'd be nothing recorded there. Because, you see, it wouldn't be working. But the power is here. It's laid on. But it's not switched on. Now, I want you to notice that, friends. This word, energy, is a little challenge to us. Are you switched on, friends? Have you never seen a man stuck by the roadside with his car? And he's wondering what's the matter with it. Then somebody comes along who's got a little bit more gumption and he goes, it's all right now, friend. He forgot to switch on. Forgot to switch on. I've met some Christians who seem to have forgotten to switch on. So I'm going to ask you to look at Philippians chapter 2. Here we're going to get exactly the same word to in-work. And then we're going to get a little light on the passage in Ephesians 6 as a consequence. Philippians 2. At the end of verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You see, the working in is so that you may do. This is power laid on. But you notice also it is balanced by the word work out. So I'm going to ask you to turn now to Ephesians 6. And I'm going to put that word work out in its right place because our version doesn't so translate it. Ephesians 6 verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having worked out all to stand. Now our version says, having done all. And then they weren't quite satisfied with that, so they said, having overcome all. But the word is not to do, and the word is not to overcome. It's strictly speaking, the echo of chapter 1. And it comes exactly in its right place in the structure. When we've got the structure in front of us, we say, of course. What's the idea of having a mighty power of God laid on if we never work it out? So in the doctrinal section it says en ergio, work in, and in the practical section it says ek, work out. So now we've got the same word from the two points of view. Well, that's two of the words. The dynamic word, the in-working word. Now the next word, dealing with this mighty power, is the word translated mighty. The word kratos which has as its basis a grip, something that holds fast, something that's tenacious. 
And then, the word power that comes at the end of the verse is the word istius, which means prevailing power, something that can overcome. Well, now God has gone out of his way to put four different words in one verse for us who believe. What manner of people ought we be if this is the truth? You see, when he's speaking of the ordinary creation of heaven and earth, doesn't it sound strange to talk about the ordinary creation of heaven and earth in contrast with ourselves? We're going up, friends. And we're in scriptural, we are in line with scripture. You see, from one point of view, we say, when I consider thy heavens, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? And then you read a book on astronomy, and you find that certain stars, the light has been travelling for centuries, and the possibility is that star has gone out long ago, but the lights that we still see it, and we shall be seeing it for a few more thousand years, because it's so far away, and the astronomer leaves us with the thought, oh, but it can hardly be possible that God has got any place for us and any room for us. And then we come the other way. This very creation of which we form a part is going to be dissolved and to pass away simply because little tiny microscopic man sinned and involved this whole uh, part of God's creation in ruin. So the psalmist says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him? And he doesn't say he's a speck of dust. He's a worm. He says, Thou hast made him for a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honour. Oh, you see, this little man, with all his waywardness and with all his sin, is far more in the sight of God than sun, moon and stars, for they are but servants to him who alone in all creation was made in the image and the likeness of his creator. So don't let the marvel of this grace and the wonder of this glory make you come to the conclusion it's too much of a good thing, too good to be true. No, no. This is intentional and we should bow in humility and yet receive with all good faith. So we've now got this mighty power at our disposal and we are told it was this same power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. But that is not sufficient. That is the start. He raised him from the dead. He set him with his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and so on. We shall discover when we are proceeding with this study that there's another mighty power in chapter 2. The very self-same word for energy is found in verse 2. This is the prince of the authority of the air, the spirit that now energizes in the children of disobedience. It's a characteristic of scripture that wherever you get the mystery of godliness, you'll find the mystery of iniquity somewhere near. If you've got the mighty power that was that is at the disposal of the believer in Christ, not far off is another mighty power which is using the unbeliever to accomplish as far as it's humanly possible the purpose and will of the wicked one. But we shan't get into chapter 2, but that was only to help you to realise that these two balance one another.
We'll look down, shall we, at the next heading. The pre-evident position to which our Saviour was exalted, extolled and made very high, and which indicates the sphere of our inheritance, the place where we hope to be in his mercy when that day comes. It says, first of all, that he set him at his own right hand. And that is stressed over and over again in Scripture. There is one psalm which is quoted more times than any other one psalm in the book, and that is Psalm 110, which says, Sit thou at my right hand. That is quoted over and over again. Sit thou at my right hand. The epistle to the Hebrews emphasizes in more places than one that when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And when he reached chapter 8, the apostles stopped and said, the things which we have spoken, this is the Son. We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand is no mere figure of speech. Well, it is a figure of speech, but it mustn't be called a mere figure of speech. It has a very wonderful meaning. Especially when you go to the Old Testament to get your first teaching. We discover that it is the place where the accuser stands in the Hebrew court of law. Satan standing at his right hand, the accuser. So you can understand when the Apostle Paul wrote, who knew that, when he took up the challenge, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who's going to be his accuser? He says, God, it is God that justifies. It is Christ that died, he doesn't stop now. Yea, rather than he's risen again. Yea, he's even at the right hand of God. And he makes intercession for us. So he says, you see, when you and I get to glory, and we stand before that throne, you needn't furtively look at the right hand and wonder if the accuser's there with a long list. When you look, you won't see an accuser. You look into the face of him who loved you and gave himself for you. And because of that, he can say no condemnation and no separation. The right hand of God. But now this doesn't really say the right hand of God only. It goes one stage further. Set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now we've already looked at this word in passing. Et arenios. Et is upon. The word arenios means heaven. Et arenios, well it means something a little different. And as epi means upon, it directs us to something above. Now, what does this mean? And how can we um, uh, sort of get an idea of something which is above or upon the heavens? First of all, you'll notice that he goes on and stresses it in verse 21. Far above all. And here again you get huperano, super, which Latin is super. I was taken to account by one critic because I dare to use the word super heavens. Well, I said it's all one and the same. If I'd have kept to the Greek, I'd have said hyper heavens, but English people wouldn't know what a hyper heaven was. But he knows the equivalent Latin word super heaven. So what's the trouble? 
But if you don't like hyper-heavens or super-heavens, what are you going to do with chapter 4 of Ephesians? Verse 10. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. Not really far above all principality and power, but far above all heavens. Well, whatever did he get to then? That he might fill all things. So should we stop for a moment, even though we have to go over a ground that we know so well? In the book of Genesis, the first verse, we have a simple statement that God created the heavens and the earth. That is the universe. It, 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 it includes all that man has discovered with his telescope and ever so much more that's beyond. Now that heaven of Genesis 1, verse 1, is never going to be dissolved, is never going to pass away, it remains. But when this earth was being prepared for man in the six days creation, heaven also was introduced. It says on the second day, let there be a firmament. And he called the firmament heaven. So here's something which was not, strictly speaking, heaven, which was called heaven. Now you say, why was it called the firmament? Well, our earlier translators mainly used the Latin version. And the Latin version contained the word firmament. Because the Latin version looked at the Greek version, which contained the word stereoma. And the Greek version had looked at the Hebrew, which contained the word rakia. And the word rakia is in the margin of your Bible, if you've got an authorised version with a margin, and it says that Hebrew word means an expansion. So it's not something solid, it's something exceedingly stretched out. Well now, Isaiah 40, God says he stretched out the heavens like a curtain so that he could dwell in it. Well, that's a tabernacle. And then he challenged Job and said, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? On what are those foundations fixed? That word foundation is the word that gives Moses 50 times over the silver sockets of the tabernacle of the wilderness. So the present creation of which we form a part is a tabernacle for God to do the redemptive work in and when he's done the work he'll fold it up and pack it away and he won't touch heaven itself for that's not involved. You see, quite beyond our present limited heaven is the heaven of heavens. Solomon knew that. When he dedicated the temple he said, Now, will God dwell in this house that I have made? Why heaven? That's the one that we read of in the second day's work. And the heaven of heavens, that something more, cannot contain him. How much less than this house that I have built? And so, we begin to realise that there's one calling in the scriptures only, one only, that takes the believer above and beyond the firmament of Genesis 1. Above the stretched out curtain of Isaiah 40. For Christ went above them. He went far above all heavens. And he seated far above all heavens. And this calling of this company have their goal there. Now there's another passage which we ought to include in this. That's Hebrews. Chapter 4. Verse 14. Seeing then that they have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. 
Now, you need not know wisdom very intimately to know that the preposition dire is very, very unlikely to be to mean into. Dire means through. Dire means through, like a diagonal through a corner. Or a diaphragm. Or whatever the word may be. Dire, it's come into our language over and over again. And that's the word that's used here. This is dire. He has passed through the heavens. So he's made higher than the heavens. As it says further on, we have a high priest, verse uh, 7, 26, for such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And yet the next chapter, book 1 says, that he's gone into heaven itself. Well then, heaven itself is higher than the heavens that he's speaking about. It's only because we will not remember that there's a limited heaven brought in at the creation of the six days, which is here for a time, and then to pass away. Hebrews 1, you remember, says, Lord, in the beginning thou hast made the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands, they shall perish. Strange that it should tell us that the work of the Creator was going to perish, but it was made to perish. God said, I never intended this tabernacle to last forever any more than he intends your tabernacle or mine, this earthly house of this tabernacle. But we look forward to a building of God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. When he said in the same way, I'm moving to a new creation, not to pass away. So, coming back to Ephesians 1. This is the preeminent sphere of this calling. He said with his own right hand, in those super heavenlies, Epiradios, the place which is above all heavens, the place which is above the heavens which are called the firmament, the place where Christ passed through in order that he may reach and in order that he may fill all things. And this is said to be far above all principality and power and might and dominion. And now the characteristic of the Apostle Paul Will you look at Romans the 8th chapter? And when he's defining his persuasion in verses 38 and 39, he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. You see, we've got the principalities and powers coming in. And these, this is the first occurrence of them in the New Testament. Romans doesn't teach the mystery, but it doctrinally prepares you to be, as it were, not afraid of principalities and powers. They're coming into their right place and you're going to be associated with them, and the head of both is Christ. So he says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, well, he said enough, hasn't he, you say, in all conscience. Then he says, no, I'll go further, nor any other creature. Now, he doesn't know what the other creatures are. He doesn't know whether there are other creatures. But he says, I'll include them. For I know this, that my Redeemer and my Saviour is, is above them all, whether I know them or not. There's another passage which is similar in Philippians chapter 2. It says that in that day when Christ is exalted, Every knee shall bow of things in heaven 
what we can say, well, we know that's the, that's the principalities and the powers and the angels, they will bow. And things on earth, and that will be the kingdom and all the nations that are then redeemed and brought into touch. And things under the earth, well, what are they? We don't know. We don't know. But because we don't know, it doesn't matter. If there are things under the earth, says the apostle, they'll bow. And if there's any other creature, they'll be kept at bay. And so he says in Ephesians, Father of all principality, that's one lot, and power, that's another, and might, and dominion, and then every name that is named. Every name that is named. I haven't given them all. But what's the need to give them all? When at last we say all things, however vast, however many. Not only in this world, which is the word age, but also in that which is to come. And now he says he has put all things under his feet. The Apostle Paul is the only one who quotes those words from Psalm 8. He quotes them three times. Once in Ephesians, once in Corinthians, and once in Hebrews. Well, that's assuming that he wrote Hebrews, isn't it? Shall we look at Hebrews and then compare it with 1 Corinthians, just to see? Hebrews chapter 2. He says in verse 6, but one in a certain place, and it's a strange way to refer to Scripture, isn't it? One in a certain place. But the Hebrews didn't say the number of the Psalms, uh, they didn't have them quite in that way. They didn't have chapters and verses as we do. So that you read in another part of the New Testament that God spoke in the bush. Well, that refers to a number of chapters that we have in the book of Exodus, which is simply called the bush. So you turn to that part of the Old Testament which tells you about the bush, and somewhere there you'll find this verse. That's all. Chapter and verse is comparatively modern. Very, very useful. We could hardly have a lexicon or a concordance, particularly if we couldn't find chapter and verse. So he says, one in a certain place. When he speaks about the psalm again in chapter 3, verse 7, even then he doesn't give the number of the psalm or even the writer. He says, wherefore as the Holy Ghost said. Or that's even more wonderful still. It doesn't matter who was the writer as long as we're sure that it's given by inspiration of God, the Holy Ghost. And he's speaking about one of the Psalms. So now we're back again in chapter 2 of Hebrews. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him, now our version says, a little lower than the angels. The margin says, a little while inferior. Now, to say a little while inferior means that he's not going to be kept there always. So he's already anticipating a company that will be far above angels and a company that might be far above principality of power. It's implicit in the very statement of Psalm 8, he made him for a little, for a purpose, lower, but he was intended in grace ultimately to be above. Now, it's made him a little lower or for a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honour, and he set him over the works of my hand. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that's the quotation again. No one else in the New Testament makes that quotation. 
Only in Ephesians, Hebrews, and 1 Corinthians. Now what does he say about this? For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Well, you say, that's obvious, but it's a strange mind that's looking at this. He wants you to see its universality. For then that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. And then he goes on, but now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man, and away he is now. He's left Adam. He's done this, you see, before ever he touches Moses, and the law of Mount Sinai, and Aaron the priest, and the sacrifices in the tabernacle, before ever he does that, and says, you needn't worry because Moses is gone, you needn't worry because Aaron is gone. He remains, Christ is there, he's done it with Adam. Well, inasmuch as Adam is not peculiarly uh, Hebrew or Jewish, he says, you see, Adam stands back and Christ fills the bill. Well, now Moses will stand back and Christ will fill the bill. It's the same thing all the way through Hebrews. And that's the reason why he's introduced it here. <laughs> well, now, when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, where we have this one other reference to this Psalm 8. 1 Corinthians 15. It says in verse 24, Then cometh the end. And before he tells you what the end is, he has a statement. When? He should have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father. When? He should have put down all rule and all authority. For he must reign, till he hath put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that should be destroyed is death. Now, for he hath put all things under his feet. Here's his psalm again. Here's the quotation. Now notice, in Hebrews, he stopped and said, well, if it's all put under his feet, it's obvious that nothing left out. But now he puts it the other way around. Ah, but he says, when he said all things are put under him, it is obvious that he has accepted which to put all things under him. Now again, you see the working of his mind? Isn't it, isn't it almost evident that the same man that wrote Hebrews 2 is the man who wrote 1 Corinthians 15? There's nobody else in the New Testament touches it. And the same sort of meticulous way of asking you to notice the implications of this verse. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. You're back again in Genesis 1 verse 1. God is not all in all while there's a sin undealt with and an enemy still in existence. But at long last, the mediatorial work of the Son will be finished. And God, without reference to any of the persons of the Trinity or any other name, God will be all in all. He adopts these offices, these persons, these names for the work of creation, the work of redemption, the work of reconciliation, the work of mediation. And when it's all accomplished, we've got to the goal. And that's only a beginning because with what God is going to do after that, nobody knows. But we're not going to worry about that, I hope, yet. There's plenty more to learn before that is upon us. Well now, come back to Ephesians. And look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. 
In verse 3, he speaks about a mystery. In verse 4, he speaks about a mystery. And there are some of God's people who, because they think it's all one and the same, they say, you see, Paul didn't say that this was exclusive to him, only that he shared it with others. Let's read verse 3, 4, and 5, shall we? How that by revelation he made known unto thee the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit and so on. But there's a possibility that we are mingling together two things. He says that by revelation there was made known unto him the mystery. And then, he says, I wrote in a few words something which if you read intelligently you'll understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed. What's he doing? I think he's doing this. Do you remember that our Saviour once on earth had a man brought before him who was sick of the palsy and up till then he had cured men of their diseases. That's all. I say that's all. He hadn't gone any further. And they brought this man sick of the palsy and they were quite expecting that he would have said to the man sick of the palsy Rise. That would have been alright. But he stopped. The time had come for him to make another claim and to show that these miracles of healing were also pictures of a spiritual healing. So he said to the man sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Oh, and all those sat round said, Oh, this is blasphemy. Oh, no one can forgive sins but God. Then he said, Now that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, I'll do something. If I'm a blasphemer, God will not allow me to raise that man from the palsy, because it's God alone who could do it. If I have blasphemed, I'll say the words and they'll be empty. He says, I might stand here and say thy sins be forgiven thee, and you couldn't see anything. And a priest in a church today can lift up his hands and say he gives you absolution, and nobody knows whether it's happened or not. But he said that you may know that the invisible thing is true. I'll now say to this man, rise, take up thy bed and walk, and he did. Well now, said the Apostle, I've made a stupendous claim that unto me, me, exclusively, has been entrusted by revelation this mystery. And I can't prove it to you. I've got no means of proving it to you. But he said, I will say this, if you'll examine what I've written before and possibly referring to chapter 1, the very verse we're reading, he said, will you point out in the writings of any New Testament writer or speaker that they have got this acne of knowledge of the mystery of Christ? Now that's not the mystery of the present dispensation. That's the unfolding mystery of Christ which started with Genesis 3.15 when it prophesied the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. And then every writer that's come along in the Old Testament has added his piece about the secret of Christ, until at last we find that Christ in the last revelation given, that is the ones in these prison epistles, is far above all heavens, filling all things. He said, if you can find anything to, to equal that, then you may doubt 
that I have this exclusive dispensation. And if you have to admit that nobody has ever seen in Psalm 8 all things under his feet were something more than sheep and oxen and include principalities and powers, well then he said, admit that if the secret of Christ, which is shared by me with others, is greater, then the ultimate, the climax that belongs to it may also be accepted as well. So now we have all things under his feet. Then we have the title of this company that are in view. Because, you see, it was all because of the purpose of redemption this took place. Christ had no need to be exalted far above principality and power, but he was. He was. When you read Hebrews chapter 1, unless you know why he says it, you seem to come to a sort of an anti-climax. You say, here's someone who is the express image of the substance of God. Here is someone who upholds all things by the word of his power, and then we are told that he's made better than the angels. What do you say? Goodness me, if anyone can uphold all things by the word of his power, he's already established his claim to be above angels. Harper says, you haven't got me. This one who had that mighty power stooped and was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. And then, <coughs> as the mediator, not in himself, but as the mediator, he was raised from the dead and exalted and given this position at the right hand of God. Well, you, you mustn't think that that was an honour to him, personally. It was his by right all the time. But it's on our account, so that we may share with him in this redemptive work. And so we have, before you get to the end of this chapter, you're told one of the companies for whom this work was accomplished. Now the Church of the One Body is the company which is particularly connected with Christ seated at the right hand far above all. If anyone should infer steps and say, but wait a minute friend, you've already told us that over and over again in Hebrews we are told that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Uh, that's to support your little story because Hebrews doesn't teach the truth of the one body. No, friends. Hebrews tells you that Christ is seated in heaven itself. But it says, like the high priest in the Old Testament, he went in alone. There isn't the remotest thought in Hebrews that any believer, however exalted, would ever enter heaven itself and sit down with him at the right hand of God. I can almost imagine that Peter would have dropped. He would have been so shocked to think that anybody would enter. And then to think that the ones who are going to enter are not even Hebrews, but outside dogs of the Gentiles. That's the marvel of it all. And that's the wonder of it all. And this company is called the church which is his body. Now the word body and the word head are relative terms. They practically cannot exist independently of one another. There's quite a number of terms in our language which are only possible if they are kept in their relationship. If there was no such, I was going to say thing, I better put it the other way, I was going to say if there's no such thing as a wife, there could be no such thing as a husband. I mustn't call a wife a thing, must I? 
as it might come back on me. But if there's no relationship, if there's no person who could be called a wife, then no person could be called a husband. Or come into the realm of economics. If there's no one who will buy anything, no one can sell anything. I'm not much of a financier, but I can see that. Don't you see that there's any amount of things that must be held in relativity? They only exist as a relation. What now? Christ cannot be head like that. No, no. Christ can only be head when the church is the body. Oh, he's head in another sense in his own right, but we're not talking about that. Christ is head and the body is the church and it makes one whole. Now there have been those who have seen this, and I'll copy this out of some old writers. Because I know this sounds a little bit strange to speak like this. He goes on to say, not only is this church called the body, but it's called the fullness, the pleroma, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. This church is called the fullness. Now that's the title of Christ in Colossians. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And this church is the fullness of him. So you see, the invisible, unconditioned God demands that one in whom his pleroma shall dwell. And then he, who is the head, he demands that there shall be a company who shall be the pleroma or fullness of him. I wonder if I'm making myself plain. Perhaps I'm not. Possibly this is such a vast subject that none of us will ever make it plain until that day. But don't you see? Here is the ultimate title of this church. The ultimate title is not a body. The ultimate title is the fullness of him, that one who in himself fills all. Get all the words clear over together in Ephesians and Colossians and you'll see that they have a perfect pattern. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 is the one we're looking at. In chapter 3, we have the goal of the prayer, where we read, verse 19, to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with, or up to, all the fullness of God. So it's still the church and not Christ. In Ephesians, it's the, it's the church which is the fullness. That's in chapter 1. It's the church which is the fullness in chapter 3. Now look again at chapter uh, 4, verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of the Christ. It's still the measure for this church. Then we come to Colossians, where we have the other references. Chapter 1, verse 19. For it pleased the Father, that in him should all the fullness dwell. Well, what's he been talking about? Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. So we're speaking about the same subject then as Ephesians who is the beginning, the first form from the dead, that in all things he must have the preeminence, or in things the Father, that in him should all the fullness dwell. 
And the last reference is Colossians 2. Verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, how? Bodily. And ye are filled to the full complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. So Ephesians says he's head over the church, and Colossians says he's head of principality and power, so he brings the two companies which are to be in the super heavenlies, the church and the principalities and powers, all united under one head. And so the story grows, and the wonder of it increases. The church which is his body, the fullness of him, that it is all in all. I was going to quote from the older writers. Chrysostom, a preacher who was called, called the Golden Mouth, as his name means, about 300 years after Christ. He said the fullness of the head is the body, and the fullness of the body is the head. He said it both ways. Well, we'd all agree that the fullness of the body, the church, is the head, but he said always the other way around too. And the fullness of the head is the body. They both complement, not complement, but complement each other. The one cannot be without the other. What a blessed thought. I may reverently say, Christ can't do without me. And I believe I'm right. He cannot do without me. Or you, if you belong to this company. For we are the complement of him. And together, the head and the body, we make up this marvellous fullness. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? We've got to watch our step here, but isn't it marvellous that we can take these words and think they may be true? My beloved is mine, and I am his. Mine, his. Abiza, who is a, more of a, not so far back as Chrysostom, but he's far back enough for us, he said, however complete Christ is, in himself. You see, he's, he's seen this. However complete Christ is in himself, yet, as head, he is not complete without his body. And that is a wonderful thought, isn't it? So, you see, we have been redeemed, yes. We've been redeemed for a purpose, and we've got a glimpse of it. Now, if Christ is to be king on this earth, he'll have to have a kingdom but no one can be a king who hasn't got a kingdom. Not even Christ himself. It'd be an empty title, wouldn't it? And in the second sphere of blessing, he's the bridegroom. But unless there's a bride, that's an empty title, so there's a bride. And in the top sphere, he is head, and the church is the body. So in each sphere, there is the complement, making up the whole. Or may the Lord give us grace that we may see these things, and insofar as they are in harmony with his mind and will, accept them, glory in them, and then seek grace to walk. For here comes the rub, walk worthy of such a calling.